The views and opinions expressed in the following podcast do not necessarily reflect those of the producers, the affiliates, or digital platforms hosting this podcast. All content is for the purposes of education, conjecture, and at times entertainment. We promote inclusiveness and diversity. Enjoy the show. Welcome to Into the Deep with Jay Costa. Welcome to Into the Deep. I'm Jay Costa. The Mothman, Loch Ness Monster, Chupacabra, Bigfoot. These are just some of the famous cryptids that have been the subject of so much speculation throughout history. Some are very mysterious with no explanation for their existence, while others are a bit more familiar thanks to pop culture phenomena. And while whether or not cryptids exist, one thing is for sure, today's guest has made it a life mission to find out more. He's been a frequent guest on Coast to Coast AM and has been featured on numerous television shows on Discovery, Animal Planet, Destination America, CBS, and more. Today's guest is Lyle Blackburn. He's the author of several acclaimed books, including The Beast of Boggy Creek, Texas Bigfoot, Sinister Swamps, Momo, and a myriad of others. Lyle also happens to be a host of a podcast himself called Monstro Bizarro and is the founder of the rock band Ghoul Town. We talk about so much in this episode. We talk about Lyle's lifelong fascination with legendary creatures and strange phenomena. We talk about his band Ghoul Town, his books, and so much more. So join me as we seek light and journey into the deep with Lyle Blackburn. Enjoy. Lyle, thanks so much for joining me, man. I can't thank you enough for being on the show. Absolutely. Well, I know who you are and I, I know what you've been up to, but if you wouldn't mind sharing for our viewers and our listeners who you are and what it is you do, my friend. Well, my name is Lyle Blackburn and I research uh, unexplained creatures. Uh, I've always been into the subject of paranormal and specifically sightings of you know, Bigfoot and things like that my entire life. And as an adult, I looked into it in a more serious fashion, sort of a investigative journalist uh, approach. And I've written several books on the subject um, over the years. I, I suppose my most notable book is The Beast of Boggy Creek, which covers the infamous legend of Boggy Creek Bigfoot case from back in the 70s. And uh, since then, I've gone on to work with uh, various documentary companies to produce documentaries on cryptids. I've been on shows like Monsters and Mysteries in America and The Unexplained and a whole bunch of others. And uh, I also play in a rock band called Ghoul Town. So I'm pretty busy all the time, but it's all good stuff and I love it. Right on, man. Sounds like you're living the life. <laughs> living the dream, man. Yeah, absolutely. So. I love asking how people got on the trajectory to where they are today, but you know, were these stories that you heard when you were younger and that you just wanted to get deeper into? Yeah. I mean, as far back as I can remember, I, I just love movie monsters and movies, you know, horror movies and stuff. And uh, that was my first kind of thing. But then at some point 
think around third grade, I got a book called Strange But True, and that had stories of Bigfoot and Yeti and Loch Ness Monster. And that was like mind blowing because like, okay, this is like real life monsters, so to speak. And, and I just became enthralled with those kind of reports. And along the way, of course, I, I love ghosts and, you know, UFOs, anything that was mysterious and unexplained. And so, you know, I was, I suppose, just a casual observer, reader, listener, uh, watcher of those subjects through a lot of my life. And, and then later, um, just something that I hadn't, time to look into and i i've been a, a touring musician for many many years since really since my 20s and i would just sit in the tour bus and read bigfoot books and stuff and i remember the guys like what are you reading you know and uh so then i i, I was working for the horror magazine rue morgue and kind of their cryptid expert slash i knew a lot about cryptids in horror movies and I just had this desire to write a book. So that's when I started working on The Beast of Boggy Creek. And uh, and it just was a fun process of interviewing people, looking into the case, um, learning about old reports, new reports, and actually going to these areas because I grew up hunting with my father. And that was a big part of sort of the monsters in the woods thing because, you know, I loved the outdoors and all that. And I suppose pair that with the possibility of seeing something mysterious or unexplained or scary. I, I love those. So through, through that, um, you know, I started looking into the possibility of, you know, the reality of people seeing unexplained creatures and, and other paranormal stuff. And once the book came out, that, that sort of launched me onto a more serious focus into this. Um, but it's always just come from that childhood fascination with the subject. Right on. And during the process, like being a musician, did you feel there were any differences between like, you know, trying to craft a song or creating an album compared to trying to write a book? Well, in a way, there there are similar in, in the process of the creation of something. Um I, I remember I was always good at writing and I wrote for a few rock magazines and horror magazines, but I always, there was not that instant gratification. when you thought about writing a book, it was like, well, I can write a song and I could perform it at the very next gig, which could be this weekend or whatever we could as fast as we could learn it. That seems cool. But a book, man, that just sounds like it's going to take forever. And, and then you're waiting for people to read it and feedback. But uh, I've learned that, that that's worth it, you know, in the process of creating something that I'm passionate about, whether that's the music side or this case of a creature where people, you know, credible people reported this and it may have transformed the whole entire town, you know, that's now known for sightings. Um, that was rewarding. And of course, once you get that first album or book out and you start to get feedback, especially people, appreciate it and like it that just feeds the the fire to to continue those things um because i'm passionate about those sort of things so I, they're a little bit different in the approach is the tools you use but very much a creation of something that you put out there and then people can enjoy it right on 
it's a great point too. Like being able to get to a point where, with like a, I love the comparison you made with like a song, you know, you can have it ready for the next gig and kind of almost get that instant feedback if people are digging it or if they're not versus a book and putting that out, man. I love that comparison. So with that said, uh, with your experience, did you feel like with that first book being out, like it kind of got you over that hump where it didn't matter? Like, okay, like I, I can do this kind of like when you first were writing songs and you first saw the positive feedback coming from those. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and I kind of hit it at the right time um, because the Beast of Boggy Creek came out in 2012 and I had been working on it for two or three years prior. I, I quickly got a publishing deal with Anomalous Books, which publishes, had published some of my favorite, uh, you know, books on the unexplained. So it was like an honor to, to get onto that. Um, and then very quickly after the book was out, it was on Coast to Coast Radio. Um, I got calls from Finding Bigfoot and Mo the Monsters and Mysteries in America show uh, that was on, we'll say, Destination America at the time. Wanted, they were covering the Boggy Creek case, and it just happened to be that I had put the book out, and suddenly I'm looked at as a guy who knows something about it, obviously. And those interviews helped, you know, obviously it was a good platform. If you write a book, you want people to know about it. And, and then once that sort of started going on, uh, I realized people were interested in that because I almost wrote, I kind of wrote the book because I wanted to know. You know, I'd seen this movie, The Legend of Boggy Creek, which made this subject famous in the 70s. But and I, you know, it's influential to me, but I kind of pursued the book just like I do with music. I do it be first because I want to do it and I like to do it and I have the passion to do it. Um, and second, you know, to get any kind of accolades or what have you. So, yeah, once the book came out, there's television calling. I thought, well, hell, this is a this seems great. You know, uh, it's worth that work and the meticulous effort I put into to researching and writing the book. And so that just, you know, I could continue. And now I saw the process that, yeah, you know, you do a lot of work, but at the end of the day, you know, the feedback and, and it's worth it. That's awesome. So what were some of the things that maybe going into your first book, you know, you, you didn't realize, obviously you learned through the process, those things that you now apply every time you're writing a book or, or doing anything else. Yeah, it's certainly the, you know, just, just the collection of the data, the research to just how you organize it in the book. And that mm -hmm. was one of the hardest parts is how do you display or, or arrange this information so that it's digestible. And, and becomes a story because it you know, it is kind of in chunk, chunks because, you know, this guy saw this Bigfoot-like creature in this year. And then this this year, this guy saw it. Oh, and there was a movie made. And then, you know, all the processes, you have to interweave those so it's engaging and creates a narrative for the whole story instead of just being this sort of broken up thing and, and that's the first thing i learned is to try to create a page turner it's like you know this this was a dramatic sighting but what came next would be like nothing else you know which was true to the process of these incredible cases and tales um if you investigate them as a whole so 
so that once I kind of had that formula is how it laid out, it was easier to research the next book because I already had a, a vision of how all the parts and pieces would fit in in that timeline. So it was, it was became more organized and a little more efficient at it, obviously, having done it once. Right on. I, so in your opinion, do you feel like having that background in music and being able to write songs and over time, you know, throwing, you know, demo process, pre-production, and then finally what you do release as a musician, do you feel like that helped you apply that kind of same kind of ideology, I, I guess, uh, with that creative process? Yeah, in some ways. Yeah. Cause it, you know, there's a behind the scenes process before, you know, it becomes the final product. Yeah. The writing, the demo and, and so forth. And it was the sort of a similar process to that ultimate end product. But well, what I, what I really took away from the band was I already had a, um, like a notion in it. Uh, I was good at, I guess, the marketing of it because you need a good album cover and you need to have, you know, go do events, you know, whereas you're playing live, which gets turns on people to your music. You know, you, you can't just write a book and then, I mean, you do have Amazon and the publisher, but really you're the best salesman. And you know, it's not, it wasn't about the money per se, but it's like I worked a lot, like three years making this book. And I think it's an engaging case. And certainly anybody who's interested in, you know, the unexplained, especially cryptids or Bigfoot, they got to want to know this is like a famous piece of that history. And so you want people to, to want to read the book. So I, I remember I asked Anomalous, like, how much do you normally spend on a cover? And there was a very small amount and I'm looking at the covers of the book and I'm like, ah, but you just give me that and I'll pay for the rest because I know these really great artists that have done our album covers and other things. And so I got a really great cover and that certainly helped the book. I mean, you know, endless, I mean, I'm sure that helped draw people in and it looked professional. So they, they kind of understood once I did this and I said, I know marketing. And then also to, you know, I started contacting paranormal conferences, Bigfoot conferences, which at the time were really starting to kick in um, and, you know, to ask if I can be a speaker or show up and sell books. And so that part came from, you know, the band marketing and doing a similar thing, you know, and then again, the timing seemed well right because over the years, those, the numbers of, cryptid conferences and paranormal conferences and Bigfoot conference. And there's almost so many, I can't do them all. <laughs> if I tried, there's just, you know, I remember there's a few of them that I would ask. And now it's like, I can't even do them all. So that's a good thing. Right. Good problem to have. Right. Well, that's awesome. I'm glad that obviously this is happening. And, um, you know, it's, it's so funny because like, you know, with the book, just like music, just like anything in art where like it's timing is everything. So to, to have that experience where like, you know, especially with your first book coming out and people starting to kind of catch on. So I have to ask, especially with now what's happening right now, it seems like a lot of people are talking about, you know, either talking about UFOs, UAPs, 
or they're maybe even talking about, you know, quantum Bigfoots. So I have to ask, do you think, in your opinion, do you think it's flesh and bone? Do you think it's quantum? Do you think it's able to go in and out of dimensions? Well, you know, of course, I started where a lot of people did with the thoughts of Bigfoot is, you know, it's some undiscovered species of ape or hominid that, you know, there's small populations and that and that sort of thing. Um, but, you know, like with anything, the more information you gather and the more you know about the subject, you begin to either formulate other ideas or question what you first thought on your limited amount of info. And especially after interviewing so many hundreds of people firsthand, you know, you, you say, well, there's something to this, but we can't prove it. And the longer it goes, I mean, we've, we've had serious Bigfoot researchers going for 50, more than 50 years. We still don't have, you know, scientific proof of it. You have to say, well, if people are accurately seeing what they say they see, and we're still, even if there's small populations and all that, we still should be able to, to, to have some proof or one gets run over by a truck, I mean, or anything. That's where these other theories start coming in, quantum Bigfoot and other things where uh, researchers and have proposed that maybe they're not flesh and blood. Maybe they're, you know, passing through our dimension or something which would explain the sightings yet, um, you know, explain why we don't have proof. But I I'm kind of split. I mean, I'm open-minded to all of it um, because I don't have all the answers. But I, one of the problems with portals and stuff is like, I can see the consistency of Bigfoot reports in places where that would make sense for a large, unidentified animal, if you will, creature to, to live, you know, along, uh, you know, swampy areas, mountainous areas, heavily forested areas, uh, riverways and things. They're not popping up like on my street here you know, near Dallas, Texas. So that, that to me, I mean, it's hard to rectify if, if they are just popping randomly or we're seeing these visions, why wouldn't they, you know, why wouldn't there be Bigfoot reports in suburban streets or something else? Same with other cryptids as well. But so, you know, that kind of stuff just keeps this sort of a, of a constant, changing puzzle in which we're trying to fit the pieces into but we really don't have all the pieces we don't even have the picture that we're trying to make the puzzle out of so i just kind of continue to operate without any grand notion of trying to prove it or anything i just take one step at a time and go one case by case and just i enjoy that process and even talking to somebody who describes seeing something that is just unexplainable um, again, there's something to it, but I don't have all the answers. Right on. I 100% agree and totally align with what you're saying too, because it's fascinating. You, you brought up a great point. Like, you know, <laughs> why aren't we seeing some sightings in like deep Ellum, you know, <laughs> where someone's reporting like, Hey, you know, I, I just had the sighting and it's, it's, you know, consistently in usually deep forested areas. Um, so I love that point. So 
And you brought up something else earlier, you know, with all these, you know, decades of research, sightings, recordings, um, you know, do you think, in your opinion, do you think we'll ever make contact? Do you think we'll ever have something tangible? Well, I, I think so. And I, I think definitely early on when I was, after having interviewed some really good witnesses, you're like, man, any day now, you kind of just think just any day, boom, there's a headline or somebody's going to come out with a, a video or whatever that they're standing there with, with one of these. And, you know, I, I kind of, thought about that a lot but i think now it's sort of just almost that operates in the back of my mind where it's like well i kept thinking every day but maybe maybe we got to wait longer and you know it's just sort of something that i think could happen i mean some of this phenomenon you know um can reasonably be explained um somebody can get a better than a blurry picture, at least. Maybe somebody finds a body or something, but uh, I don't know. Again, it's like I, what I think is going to happen and how it goes down is two different things. <laughs> Fair enough. It's true because, you know, we can, we can hope for something, you know. I mean, I never thought I'd see a day, you know, growing up that, you know, our, our own government would admit to ufos or uaps you know to some degree yeah. you know so yeah. it's it's fascinating because we, we live in such like these times where like growing up you know i remember you know for me like growing up in the 80s and seeing like so many different things so many different movies and you know having this fascination for cryptids and ufos and all these stories did you ever think that we'd get to this point you know as a you know as a culture even did you ever think that we'd be having these conversations so openly? No, no, absolutely not. I mean, it was always just sort of to the fringe, um, you know, with, with all of it. And back or at some point, you know, people were like thought of as crazy. You know, you just, it's like, I didn't think they were crazy, but anybody who dared report seeing an alien or a UFO or a Bigfoot or, you know, or, whatever you know risk their reputation so it, it is crazy to think that people are like lining up to go on tv even to you know finding bigfoot or whatever i saw something or all these ufo developments to where yeah i'm watching major news networks and we've gone from those newscasters who anytime in the past they would always have a snicker they couldn't you know, they didn't want people to think, oh, I don't believe in this. Ha ha, we're running this story on UFOs. Well, now they kind of say, well, you know, I've seen some of them say they believe in the possibility of extraterrestrial visitors. So, yeah, it's mind-blowing to, to, to live in a time when we've gotten this far with at least one of the phenomenons. Right. And I hear different theories, you know, especially now that people, it's, it feels like people as a whole, you know, are accepting extraterrestrial visitors or, you know, the influence of extraterrestrials. And so I, I, I start thinking about different things. I start thinking about different cultures, different continents. You know, we think we have the stories of Yeti and we hear different things about elongated skulls being found in South America and, and other parts. Do you feel like 
in your opinion, do you feel like some of these are possibly left over from some, some sort of influence of extraterrestrials with what were here originally in on what we call Earth? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm definitely open to that. Um, I remember watching that documentary, Chariots of the Gods, in the 70s. And that's where I first remember learning of this whole notion that, that our planet could have been visited by uh, people from, you know, outer space. And, and of course, you know, you think about that, and you're like, eh, it's, I don't know, you know, it's, it's, it's such a huge jump. But as you begin to look at this and think about it rationally as an adult, you're like, you know, we really don't exactly know um, these things. And as much as we think we know, or we're super smart or whatever, and, and we can make smartphones and other stuff, and we can fly to the moon. Actually, we may not know as much as we think we do. And there are those pieces of unexplained parts of the puzzle the, that you can you know, they can, you can take it in two different directions on the theories, but we, we really don't have a way to explain. And you're right. The more we see some things that are like, it just seems like some outer, outer influence uh, had, had made this rather than just some natural progression of our culture. Um, yeah, I, I think that you know, if like Independence Day movie or whatever, if one day they just fly back here, we're just going to go, okay, yep, there it is. Now it all makes sense, and and I, it's just like finding a you know some guy popping on uh, the news with a Bigfoot body, it may be just the same kind of thing as we turn on the news and they're they're reporting a spaceship hovering over New York, you know, and. And you wouldn't be too surprised. Which is fascinating because of what we were talking about earlier. Like there was a point in time, and especially I, I, I can tell both of our lives were like people who talked about that were crazy, you know, tinfoil hat wearing, like, you know, they're outlandish. And now it's like, I feel like these things are now public knowledge and people aren't talking about them enough. Yeah. You know, what's weird is people ask me sometimes, man, you know, you, you, you know, you're on these weird TV shows, you write these books about, does anybody ever hassle you about it or whatever? And I'm like, no, in fact, people always want to know, like, because, you know, I, my band, we, we still play and tour and fans will come up and a lot of times instead of asking me about the band they'll start asking me what do you think about bigfoot man and i'm thinking this is crazy you know people are truly interested in these things and they may or may not want to share that online or make a post i, I believe you know but they are and if they see somebody who they think knows something about it in person man they're 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 asking questions and they're listening so that shows that people do love these things, and especially with the the recent stuff with the UFOs. I mean, everybody's kind of talking about it and talking about it pretty rationally, not not with the Snickers and all that. It's like, man, do you think you know? Right, which is wild because I never thought, you know, like I said earlier, I never thought I'd see that in my lifetime. I, I 
you know, while I always was open to the possibility of it, you know, I wasn't close minded to the fact that it wasn't a possibility. And, you know, you bring up chariots of the gods and like, what a eye opening, you know, moment for me to be able to like, okay, wait a minute, like, this is plausible. This, this could be a thing. And that's why, you know, going, you know, going back to, you know, Bigfoot and Sasquatch and like just the possibilities of it possibly being an interdimensional being. And if that's the case, hypothetically, I'd just love to know your opinion. If that were the case, what do you think Bigfoot or Sasquatch's message for humanity would be? <laughs> well, uh, if they have any intelligence, they're probably frowning upon us i would i would think i don't think we've been the greatest custodians of our planet which i think people are starting to understand um we need to take more responsibility and in a way something like bigfoot does represent a, a link between us and nature you know early on they called it the missing link or whatever which is sort of a not just an outdated concept but but there is sort of this uh, sim symbolic representation of of natural green earth with Bigfoot, and if Bigfoot creatures are coming here and they're traipsing around in our forest, in our swamplands, and our beautiful mountains, which seem to be disappearing or being logged, overlogged, and um, shrinking, and you know places where, as a kid, I played in the woods are now. There's Home Depots and stuff there, and so yeah, I think if if these you know if these creatures come from a any sort of planet where they have a better hold on the longevity and and responsibility they have, they would certainly be their message to us would be sort of like that movie, The Day the Earth Stood Still, where the big gourd you know stood out there. It's like you better stop the nonsense, or we're going to blow up your whole planet. <laughs> Bigfoot, I don't know uh, if it's that extreme, but yeah, certainly a, probably a message of uh, take care of your, your planet so that we have some forests to come down here and roam around. <laughs> right on. I love that. And it's, it's interesting because, you know, even I feel like different people that I've talked to, the overall consensus is that like when we think of like Bigfoot or Sasquatch, you know, we think of like this green earth, we think of like this being that is part of something like the deep woods and the mountains and something that's just so out of a lack of better terms, just like so wholesome and organic in that way. So it's interesting that we have this like on some level of consciousness, we feel the same way about when we think about Bigfoot. I, I wonder why that is. Yeah, I remember. I remember seeing. Uh, it was probably like ten years ago. They they had some school supplies that were Bigfoot themed, and it, it was like "Leave No Trace," and it was sort of this message of you know, it, it, you know, the whole be green and reduce our carbon footprint and all that's really in the last few years gotten bigger. But it was kind of the seeds of that, and I, I remember thinking, wow, you know, this is a this is an appropriate connection whether Bigfoot turns out to be real or not. It represents something good in a way of that um, connection to nature and other things. So I, 
And at, at the end of the day, when you research these things, you know, I may do this for my whole entire life and have no proof whether I offer it or anybody else, you know, so you want to feel like first, you know, you're sharing these stories, which are, I think, important to, to collect and to, to document, but, you know, you feel like it represents something that's a positive thing. You know, it's not, I mean, I talk about the scariness of the sightings and I like the spooky aspect of all of it, you know, but, but in, in many ways it's a, it can be looked at as positive and if you know using bigfoot just to get a get kids out in the woods you tell oh you know put down the phones we're gonna go hiking they're like whoa hey we're gonna go looking for bigfoot we somebody said they saw one down here well they're ready to go you know so it can be used in a positive way to where no matter what the outcome is with these mysteries that you feel like you've spent had you know time well spent I love that. And definitely brings me back to my youth, you know, where like, you know, between my dad and my uncles, you know, talking about either Bigfoot or pirates or, you know, anything to just kind of get the imagination going. And, you know, it's funny because I remember playing with toys that didn't just do everything for you. You know, you used your imagination to play with these toys or you, you know, I'd be with buddies and we'd go out in the woods and we'd like create these whole different scenarios and stories in our mind of what we're doing and what we're building. And it, it's fascinating. And, you know, you brought up a great point about getting away from the phones, getting out to the woods. And, you know, there we're seeing more and more studies where people are, they're healed by nature. If they spend more time in nature, and then I can't help but think of, you know, we talked about a little bit earlier of just thinking as you know a bigfoot and sasquatch is this like figure and like the hey leave no trace behind and like thinking about like you know what if this iconic figure is waiting for this you know hypothetically waiting for this like perfect time to reveal itself when maybe we're ready as a culture right i mean that would be amazing <laughs> and again like whether it's a ufo landing or of this just sort of elderly wise bigfoot comes out said you know well, however he communicates and yeah and says you know we're like okay yeah this is this is real and it's a, it would be a complete wake-up call any of this stuff like if a bigfoot walked out into the open or we had an alien body or a visitor i mean it, it everything we again think we know it would just suddenly flip flip on its head because you know then then these things become all the way from things people have talked about in stories and hush hush or legends into something that now we have to assimilate into what we believe about everything else so yeah that's that's really cool that's kind of a cool image just this huge bigfoot walking out one day it says you know okay here's the deal <laughs> <laughs> right man that'd be awesome oh, like i i live up in the northeast so uh, you know there's a lot of tales of like uh, you know the bridgewater triangle and like thunderbird sightings and pudgewudgies and a lot of paranormal activity happening within the bridgewater triangle you know and there's always this correlation between you know the indigenous that were here 
the early, you know, First Nations people and these beings. Do you find that in other parts of the country as well? Yes, a lot of times you do. Um, you know, any stories of creatures we have now, you can pretty much look back in Native American stories or tales and find reports of similar things. Um, you know, they may not, they're obviously not going to call it a Bigfoot or a Pugwudgie, but um, you go, well, hairy giant, forest people, lost hairy tribe. I mean, sounds like Bigfoot. Um, and I think you, you do, you always have um, that basis, which almost um, gives some more plausibility and credibility to it. Because if these things exist now, then certainly they would have been here all along. And therefore, those um, people who were even more immersed in the woods and the swamps and places would have had interactions and stories. So, yeah, I, I, I wrote a book called Sinister Swamps, where I covered notorious swamps around the country that had long histories of um, all sorts of manner of paranormal strangeness. And the Bridgewater Triangle was certainly there with Hockamock Swamp. And, uh, yeah, that, that's one that has a very strong connection to like the Pukwudgie, like you said, and, and Native American tales of this trickster kind of diminutive creature. Fast forward, now you've got people coming across something and describing it in similar ways. And according to the, to these witnesses, they had never heard the Native American tales. So, this, you know, the correlation between the two, um, you know, only when they saw the creature and then started trying to do research that they that they then realize that there had been previous stories. And a similar case in my Lizard Man book where I talk about a case from South Carolina. Um, lo and behold, people in 1980s are describing this upright reptilian type uh, humanoid creature. The Native Americans in that in that uh, uh, same area had stories of this race of sort of scaly humanoids that they said came from the sea. Well, I can tell you that the people who saw what they reported as a lizard man in 1988 had no idea about these Native American stories because they're just not something they're not taught in school, and you'd have to really be reading up on literature and studying to even know. So again, that's very coincidental that you have a tradition of it and then modern reports of the pretty much the same thing. Which is so fascinating to me because, you know, I feel like there's these stories that have been in place, oral traditions passed on, and that there are some communities that are far more in touch with some of those oral traditions from the, you know, First Nations people. But then there's other areas that are, like you said, they, they're not aware of some of these stories, and yet they're having these experiences. They're seeing these things that can be related to what's been talked about. Right. Yeah. And certainly if you do talk to First Nations uh, people, they, they, they will tell you, usually matter of factly, oh, yeah, you know, we know all about this, you know, like, it, ah, you, you, you folks are way behind, <laughs> you know, and like we probably are, but um, 
yeah, it's it's their their stories and connections um, with these are different. And again, it's like a cultural perspective of where they're coming from um, and what they what what has been acceptable for them to talk about in the ways they talk about it. Cause a lot of they framework these in, in ways we don't normally, you know, a lot of it, they imbued a spirituality to the creatures and, you know, they existed somewhere between mythological things and things that, I mean, we know that, that a crow exists and they could, they would see, um, a lot more to the crow or for example, or whatever. Um, and yeah, and so those connections with people who um, are closer to the land and had these experiences have those great stories, which again, kind of, if we take this at face value, they lend credibility to the fact that people have been seeing stuff like this all along. It's just how you described it, what, what cultural framework and what name you gave it, but essentially the same descriptions. Right on. And you know, that brings me to thinking about what, like, you know, talking about the Texas Bigfoot, you know, where people might not necessarily hear about it all the time, but there's stories, there's sightings. And so walk me through, I mean, talking about Texas Bigfoot, you know, for, for those who might not even be aware, you know, people don't realize there are forests in Texas as well. You know, there is a lot in, I love Texas, one of my favorite states. And it's, it's fascinating because when I talk to my friends and we talk about different sightings or whatever, these come up and people don't realize. So did you feel like it was a, a personal mission because you were, f- you know, from Texas that, Hey, you know, I got to share these stories. Yeah. I, I think it did become like, I'm the guy that needs to write this book type of thing because, um, when I was young, you know, I, I was born in Fort Worth, Texas, the very essential cowboy town. Um, you know, I, I got pictures of me in a cowboy hat when I was like three. So it was just, you were, this is just normal stuff. And going hunting with my father, and you know, I, I didn't hear any Bigfoot stories, you know, at, at the time when I was really young. So I had no idea there had been sightings in Texas. But um, like you say, people have a misconception about what Texas is. I mean, you kind of think of that Fort Worth cowboy cattle drives and all that kind of stuff. Um, and certainly you have, lands that are more like a something out of a john wayne movie or whatever um and as you go west you know it's more arid um as we get, you get towards new mexico but the eastern third of the state is very heavily forested piney hardwood habitat there's even we even have swamps here and it, you know in those areas it is like prime bigfoot habitat and that's where the majority of the sightings have taken place um, over the years. And when you when you go into this environment, I remember when I was a kid, we had family that lived in East Texas. When I first drove from our sort of more sparsely treed area into that, I was like, "Wow, this is like this is like another planet or something." <laughs> and uh, you know, and of course, as I started looking into these subjects, you know, I collected more and more stories uh, about sightings in uh, Bigfoot in Texas, whether those were old newspaper reports, um, fellow investigators logging these or just interviewing people myself. And it began to amass so much history that I'm like, no one's ever written a book specifically on 
sightings just in Texas, which it's a huge state. And there's a lot that I, yeah, I thought, you know, it's just something I, I should do. And, and we have a Texas Bigfoot conference that takes place every October in East Texas. So I'm like, you know, I'm at this conference every year. Why don't I have that book? You know, and I got the cowboy hat and the, the, uh, you know, the credibility of being a, a native Texan. So, yeah, I was, I was happy to put that together. And, you know, I credit a lot of my colleagues that were collecting stuff even before me to, to document, um, something that's really, some of the first stories go back to the 1800s in old, uh, newspaper reports and, and things like that to where, you know, this isn't just something of a modern phenomenon. There had been stuff going on all along. That's such a great point. Like, you know, thinking about some of these sightings and when like it's in newspaper articles, you know, way back, you know, a couple hundred years ago, people are talking about these things. So clearly, you know, something's going on. You know, I, I don't feel like something would just be this. I mean, I could be wrong, but, you know, having these articles, you know, same thing with, you know, in the Northeast where they were, you know, the, when printing became relevant and people were printing these stories of sightings of different things. So being down in Texas and having all of this information and putting it out and did you ever get any flack for it for, you know, like, ah, you know, I, I've never seen anything, so it's not real. Yeah, I mean, you know, you run across a few people like that that will, you know, dismiss it out of hand um, or have a pre preconceived idea. Um, usually, I like those, especially if it's in person. If somebody, yeah, I mean, because then I can very rationally throw out a few stories and things and from my experience that they'll they'll be like, really. Like, yeah, just, just think about it for a second. Just get rid of the pop culture, Bigfoot. And let's talk about hunters and people in the woods and some of these stories. And, you know, I can tell you maybe one by somebody I've interviewed, um, you know, that there's tracks that have been found here. And, and they usually people aren't aware of that kind of stuff. So, you know, I don't try. I, I understand very much skeptical people. You know, I mean, I, I totally get it. I mean. I know some people, especially if you've seen a Bigfoot or, a, you know, a ghost or whatever, it's easy for you to say, well, look, it's totally real. You just don't get it. But people need to see, and this is, this is a stretch. So it's something you have to, you have to accommodate their skepticism. So, but I find that you do. And if you can identify with that person, say, look, I totally get it. I mean, it seems crazy or ridiculous. Well, let me throw you a few facts, and I'm not trying to sell you. I'm just telling you, this is stuff that's happened. Usually, they'll be like, you know, yeah, well, you know, my uncle, my, my uncle did say something one time. He saw, you know, and then suddenly they they feel comfortable to to share something. So I, I think, uh, you know, those those people that dismiss it out of hand, they just don't have enough information, or you know, so they need. They need a book like Texas Bigfoot, and hopefully they would even entertain it <laughs> to, to, to know more about subject. Right on. So when people ask you in those conversations or, you know, maybe they're, you know, trying to pick your brain or whatever, I guess in your opinion today, 
because you know I, I love the fact that you're so open-minded about everything. Uh, but in your opinion today, in your words, what do you think Bigfoot is? Well, it, it, it is a hard one because the more you know, the more the less you know, it seems like. Um, to me, I mean, I still kind of go back to my sort of initial view that this that they're some sort of terrestrial creatures um possibly a you know a species of great ape that has managed to go undetected um and uh which the longer it goes the harder that is to explain but i, I think one thing we have to realize is we there's a lot of Bigfoot reports and stuff, but we, we can't accept that every single one is just that. There, there can be room for error, misidentification. These are often very quick glimpses, um, and people are interpreting what they've seen on just seconds and very limited information. So um, I think there's a lot less of these things and, and less perhaps sightings than we perceive um you know there's there's a lot of them but these span over a hundred years you know and there there it could be something that could remain elusive in parts of this country that we uh we we think seems supernatural but i mean animals are equipped that's what they do is survive and evade us and live live where we can't and um you know, I, I think it's it's possible. That being said, I mean, the longer it goes, the more I have to be open-minded about other possibilities that, again, if we say people are seeing something that they're describing, then I, I'm not sure. I don't want to say there's inner dimensions or they're from outer space or whatever, but there there's certainly could be more to it that we just simply don't understand um enough about our world not just for bigfoot but sightings of other things and other phenomenon you know that you know disappearances in the you know the bermuda triangle which you know probably not aliens abducting people but there's some phenomenon going on over there that is doesn't exactly fit into neatly into to our scientific paradigm and that could very well be for bigfoot as well so i'm i'm open-minded but i kind of just am that sort of like i'm still that little kid who just loves bigfoot in the woods man it's this giant ape thing and you know sometimes it runs across the road sometimes it's attacking people it's spooky and crazy and cool and maybe i'll see one um you know and i've had i mean i've even had some possible sightings um so that just keeps me fueled is that that childhood wonder about what it is and less about trying to explain something i don't see in front of me right now right on that's awesome and 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 have you had any sightings or possible sightings that you think yes uh over the years there's been a number of things that have happened um owls something running just out of sight um and this has happened from florida texas arkansas the best sighting incident came from the boggy creek area up in uh 
in Arkansas. And uh, this this was only a couple of years ago. And it was a place where we've heard howls, something kind of stalked us in the woods. We found footprints. But uh, on one afternoon, I was down there in this uh, low bayou area called Mercer Bayou. And I caught sight of just sort of like movement in the trees about 70 yards across this bayou channel. And I I was I looked, you know, and I thought, was that the, the leaves moving in the wind or did I see something? And as I was looking literally in that area, I saw this large kind of reddish orange something walk across between two two trees, which uh, a lot of foliage and obscured. So I saw it for, you know, just a couple of seconds and was like, what was that? It was huge. Um, and it's a place where you can't walk to because there's a bayou channel there with alligators and stuff. I would never walk through there. No one else would down there. You have to have a boat to get to the other side. And the property is part of this Sulphur River Wildlife Management Area. And in all the years, I've been going down there like 12, 13 years. I've never seen another person over there. It's, it's, not private land it's, there's nobody there's no hikers this place is remote as already as it is so that being said i i couldn't get across there at the time because we were there but we didn't have a boat we came back and tried to sort of estimate the distance and how big it would be and all that and um while i didn't see it well enough to say a hundred percent the thing was is i just prior to that i'd been in this little town falc and was talking to one of the locals at a store there and he said he had seen what he believed was the creature he said it, it ran across the road in daylight and he said to me, it looked reddish in color he said it kind of looked like an orangutan that was exactly what he said and i kid you not 20 minutes later i saw this reddish thing walk through the woods uh, just south of where his sighting had been well, his sighting had been some months earlier. So, so that was, uh, yeah, just another like tidbit of like excitement that keeps you on the trail of, of these unexplained monsters. Wow. Oh, right on, man. So, uh, do you have any new books you're working on currently or any new films that you're working on currently? Uh, a few things. There's always something going on. Um, I've been uh, pushing my own podcast, which is called Monstro Bizarro, which is more of a narrative type thing where I examine cases rather than an interview type thing, um, which has taken up some time to develop that last year. Um, I just narrated a film for Small Town Monsters, which is a film company out of Ohio that does a lot of these cryptid documentaries. I just narrated a Chupacabra movie that that will be released, I guess, imminently. Uh, and just got back from the Boggy Creek area filming an episode of a very popular um, television show on the History Channel. So uh, probably shouldn't say too much, but uh, it, it's a good one. And again, it features the legend of Boggy Creek, just like so many years ago when I got those calls. It's still, you know, still going and the ball's rolling. And so those are exciting things. Do they just continue to advance the story and you know talk about you know how cool these things are right on i love that um anything going on for cool town your band anything happening 
Yeah, actually, we we just released uh, a best of sort of album, best of the Dead West uh, for people. We've been around for quite a number of years, so a lot of people come and go. Where do I even start? You know, especially <laughs> people that come to my cryptid events and may not have followed the band all until they heard of me. So yeah, we put together that, and that that's got some bonus tracks, brand new material that literally just came out a couple of weeks ago. And we're doing some tour dates in the southeast. We're doing uh, in late October, we're doing like Memphis and Nashville, Atlanta, uh, Dayton, South Carolina. So that's a lot of stuff coming up in uh, October, including some other appearances. I'll be at a Goatman Festival in Kentucky, October 13th, 14th, and, and, and other things. So always busy, busy times. Right on. Yeah. I am, I would imagine busy month for you, busy month for anybody dealing with the unexplained. <laughs> I know they always say, Hey, I was thinking, you know, it's, it's October. We were thinking of getting you. Can you come to this conference? I'm like, yeah, you want to book that next year because everybody wants this month. <laughs> right. Yeah. Get to plan it out ahead. You know, G- yeah, give yeah. me, give me a year's notice on this. <laughs> right. This is, this is like Christmas for uh, exactly. paranormal people, man. <laughs> <laughs> right. Oh man. Well, it's awesome. Uh, Lyle, I can't thank you enough for taking some time and your space and your energy to be on the show, man. Uh, George and I can't thank you enough. Um, this has been, this has been awesome, man. Where can people find you on the internet, brother? So, you know, the best place to find info is on my website, lyleblackburn.com. Of course, my books are available on Amazon as well. Uh, Google Town Music is available everywhere. Finer Music can be found on iTunes and Spotify. And likewise, my podcast is on all those platforms as well, Monstro Bizarro. So uh, yeah, just hit my lyleblackburn.com and you can go from there down the rabbit holes. And there you have it. I can't thank Lyle enough for his time, his space, and his energy. Be sure to check out Lyle's band, Ghoul Town, as well as his podcast, Monstro Bizarro. Hit the link below in the description. You can also find Lyle at lyleblackburn.com. Hopefully you've taken a moment to hit that like button, maybe even hit that notification bell so you can find out about new episodes coming out. Thank you so much for following us on this journey. George and I can't thank you enough. So until next time, take care of one another and keep thinking for yourself.